standing in body or spirit. Uh, we will do very likely as Jesus and the disciples did when they came before um, God's word. They would uh, recite what was called at that time the Shema, which means listen in Hebrew. And of course, Jesus said it became the great uh, commandment. So if you'll follow after me in Hebrew, then we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, this morning, scripture is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is the fourth of um, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall do your uh, labor and do all of your work, but the Sabbath is to be a day holy to the Lord. On it you shall do no work, uh, not you, nor your son, nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, or any foreigners who are residing in your towns. For the Lord your God made the earth and the heavens and the sea and all everything that is in them in six days and on the seventh day he rested and therefore he blessed it as a Sabbath to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I don't know about you, but when I think about Egypt, the very first thing that comes to my mind is a picture and it's the pyramids. Uh, the pyramids, when you look at them, they are a picture of the incredible might and power of Egypt. It's helpful sometimes for me to remember that by the time Moses even came on the scene, the pyramids had already been in Egypt for more than a thousand years. In the United States, we're often grateful for the sort of power and influence that we've had in the world, but pretty much that's uh, been that kind of power has been for less than two centuries. By the time Moses got to Egypt, they had had that kind of power for more than a thousand years. So when you look at it, you see not only an architectural and an engineering marvel, but you see uh, a, a symbol of the great power of Egypt. But also when you look at the pyramids, you get another picture, which is how Egyptian society and culture worked. In modern parlance, um, Egypt was organized like a pyramid scheme. And that is the, the broad base at the bottom of the pyramid were working for the people at the top of the pyramid. And so oppression flowed downward and wealth and prosperity flowed upward toward the very top of um, the pyramid. And so uh, Pharaoh and some elite uh, benefited quite a bit uh, from the system. Uh, how, how others benefited just depended on where you were. Um, if you were employed by Pharaoh, actually as the, the um, descendants of Moses were for a brief time in Egypt, it wasn't too bad. Uh, you had a 10-day work week. Uh, then you got a day off and then uh, you were uh, given while you were working not only your wages, but you got uh, a beer and bread and maid service. So not too bad. Unless, of course, you were poor or elderly or you were not able to work. Then you were of no use to this pyramid system and you fell and were crushed and deserted under its weight. 
It also didn't work for you if you were a slave, like the Israelites became by the time of Moses. There was no day off for the slaves, no beer delivered to your quarters uh, with bread. Uh, it was a time of, in, of intense weight and oppression. So when you look at the pyramids, you see not just power, but you see just the way things ran. But a closer look at the pyramids now from uh, more recent um, historical research shows that actually there are cracks in the pyramid uh, that can be seen. And one of the uh, more current research is saying basically everybody in Egypt felt the weight of oppression. Because those, of course, who were slaving at the bottom um, had to uh, have their uh, bricks they had to make, uh, both um, literally and in some places and metaphorically as they did other things. And they, were, um, they had taskmasters over them who had quotas. They had overseers over them who had the quotas. Then you had people who were near the top who were benefiting and becoming quite dependent on this production underneath. So they began to be anxious about whether the stuff they were expecting was going to flow upward and whether the production they were anticipating uh, was going to meet uh, their standards and what they required. And then we've begun recently to understand that even the pharaohs felt this pressure in Moses' day because by then the pharaohs were thought of as gods. And if you're God, you have a great deal of of responsibility in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's job was to make sure that the sun came up every morning, that the sun set at night, and that annually the Nile River uh, would flood its banks and provide irrigation for the crops that were going to be uh, uh, grown for what was really the bread basket uh, for most of the world at that time. So basically what we're discovering is that everybody in Egypt felt the pressure to produce from Pharaoh on down. And I don't know if you've ever worked in a system where your boss felt some pressure, but typically pressure felt at the top gets pushed down all the way through the ranks. And so everyone uh, found that pressure and oppression flowed downward. And uh, when we look at Egyptian society of that day today, what we see is it's a society of high anxiety. Everybody's anxious about what's, what's happening or what is not happening. And it's also a society that's extremely restless. It's hard to rest uh, when you have quotas to meet. It's hard to rest when the people under you haven't yet met their quota. And so everybody becomes, in a sense, on a treadmill. It's a little bit like the spin cycling classes that Lindsay teaches. And they're turning and turning and turning and not getting anywhere. In that system, there were definite cracks that can be seen. But I have to believe that uh, the being that saw the cracks before anyone else was the God of the universe, who looked at this system and probably noticed there were two major things wrong with this system. The first one was this, that there was a great deal of slave uh, labor at the bottom of the system. Our God is a free God, and since we are created in the image of God, it is God's will and desire that we live and be free. And so when you see an entire group of people who are not free, that's a problem when God looks at it. And as you probably know, what Egypt had to do is they ran out of slave labor. They had to go out and try to conquer ever ter- uh, other territories just for the labor. 
to bring the people in as slaves. And so a God who desires and wants freedom for people is not going to be thrilled with uh, uh, this sort of pyramid scheme. The other thing that you note about the pyramid scheme is that people are treated more as um, means to an end than an ends in themselves. They are commodities. They are what they've the number of bricks both literally, if you're in the storehouse or pyramid, but or in other jobs, literally, metaphorically, the bricks that you produce, that's your measure as a person. And we're told in the Bible that God created us, male and female, in the image of God. That every person has worth and value and dignity apart from what they produce. You do not have to have a quota of bricks to be valuable and to be loved, and to have um, worth uh, inside yourself. So God had to look at that system and not be particularly thrilled. Uh, Human beings, all created in the image of God, are, are nonetheless different from one another. What the rabbis used to teach is when human beings uh, uh, make images uh, or coins, because coins always had like the Pharaoh or the God's image on it when they make it, when they go through the coin-making operation, everyone comes out looking the same. But when God is minting people in the image, we all come out different. And in that different lies part of our dignity. Some of us are shorter. Some are taller. Some have uh, skills uh, with dexterity with our hands. Others have skills uh, with the voice or reasoning. Some have uh, hair. Others not so much. But in those differences, that's our dignity. And in Egypt, there is a system that downplays the differences and the dignity in people. And you are only what you produce. So God's not real thrilled. God sees the cracks in the pyramids, perhaps before anybody else sees it. And so God decides to take action. And as we know from the book of Exodus, God did a couple things. Uh, The first thing is God decided to set these people free. And through, through a series of ten plagues and then culminating in the Red Sea where the Egyptian uh, uh, forces are, um, are drowned in the Red Sea, God frees the people. But God doesn't leave it there. They get just a little bit out of town. God brings them to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and gives them ten commandments. Um, now, one thing's commandments are is they're both specific and yet they're also general. general. A commandment is like a summary. Um, it's almost like a Cliff notes or spark notes, do they even have those anymore? Anyway, stuff I would look at uh, when I w- didn't read the book. Um, and uh, so, in other words, Jesus uses it when he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Basically, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you spent three years with me, let me sum it up for you. This is how you'll, this is how you'll do what I want you to do. So in the same way, God says, here's ten things I want you to do by which you can organize society. And number four on the list is he, God institutes a Sabbath. There's going to be a day off for every, everyone. No matter where their rank in the pyramid is, they get this day off. Even, you probably already noted, the animals. Everyone gets this day off. It's, um, and many people believe that of the Ten Commandments, this is sort of the hinge commandment or the swing commandment on which the other nine rest because the first three have to do with your relationship with God and and commandments five through ten have to do with your relationships with other people, starting with your parents and and moving uh, the rest of society. And so what they notice is, is that hinge point 
in the middle is, is this Sabbath day and rest. And there was a famous rabbi of the 20th century who used to argue, his name was Abraham Joshua Heschel, he would argue that the most important of the Ten Commandments is in fact the Fourth Commandment. And he says if we will follow that Sabbath rest, we're more likely to keep the other nine. But if we violate the Sabbath rest, then we're more, more likely to live in ways that will violate um, the other nine. So uh, God does two things, frees them and says, here, this is how we're organizing society. And one thing I I want you to understand is this is a very non-Egyptian way to organize your society, to give everybody a day off. It's non-Egyptian, it's non-Persian, it's non-Babylonian, it's non-Assyrian. It's every major power that will surround Israel. They do not do this. This is an Israelite innovation that says everyone is worthy of the rest. And they are given that, not by basis of what they produce, but by the basis of the fact that they exist. So value is not in your production. Value is in your creation in the image of God. And I want you to think with me just a little bit more in this picture. You know, picture in your mind the pyramid. All right, you got it? What do you put inside a pyramid? What are they basically? Are they a house? What are they? You probably know, and no, but no wrong answers, but they're tombs. They're tombs. You put dead people in pyramids, and you equip dead people for their journey in the pyramids. Egypt is a culture that is obsessed in the days of Moses with death. And from the time a Pharaoh is born, the Pharaoh's energy and resources are spent on preparing for death. And it is not surprising that a death culture will be a culture of high anxiety and little rest and little value of people and and their life. Because what really matters is death. But the culture of the Jews and certainly the culture of the Christians is a culture of life. And that God intends that we have life and live life in abundance and live life to the fullest. And a key part of that is our ability and willingness to rest. Moses would later say, I'm going to give you two choices. You know, you already escaped from Egypt. You're getting ready to go on the promised land. He said, you can choose life or you can choose death. And I guarantee you every person in the crowd knew what he was talking about. You can go back and do it the way Egypt did it or you can do it the way God wants us to do it. You can only value people on what they produce and what they do for you and be valued and evaluated the same with others. Or you can grant people love and worth and acceptance. Those are the two ways that you can go. And I just want you to know that the way that uh, Israel was to go was a very subversive way to do it. It was a way of saying, I am not my quota. I am not my production. I am a person of worth. And I'm surrounded by people who are also of equal worth. And so one of the things that says to me is when I refuse to rest, basically I'm, I'm slipping back into slavery. When I refuse to rest, I'm basically saying I am what I can get done. And to slip back into slavery is to slip back into anxiety and lack of rest. And eventually, if we remember the pyramids, it's to slip back into death. But we have a choice to do it a different way. And that is to be not what we produce, but to be who God says that we are. 
that's kind of a tough decision to make. I mean, we live in a rather Egyptian culture with a great deal about anxiety about what we get done and don't get done. Or at least I certainly feel that. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I was uh, like way short of my quota of bricks. Way short. In fact, you can kind of look at the financial statement today and you can get kind of a picture of what it looked like two years ago, only a little worse today. But I kind of internalized that as like, I'm not bringing bricks. I'm not making enough bricks. And then I was also in charge of a, a group of pastors from uh, Missouri, New Mexico, and Texas. And um, I would mentor and coach them, and we'd have meetings uh, three times a year. And I'm getting ready to go to this meeting already feeling uh, anxious about my ability to produce. And we're in Oklahoma City going to have this meeting, and we're bringing a guest speaker in from California. But before I leave for the meeting, I hear from five of my ten people in the group that they might not be there. Two of them, I don't hear anything at all. So I'm looking at the possibility of, of three of us there. Well, we're bringing in a speaker from California to find out I'm seven bricks short of a load. So I'm thinking about how I, I fail here, I fail there. And for the first, and I hope last time in my life, no guarantee, I guess. Basically, I'm sitting on the back of an airplane and I get a, a panic attack. And I want off the plane. I don't want to get off the plane and face that I'm seven bricks short for this person flying in from California. Uh, and so I want to get up and get off. And it's just an overwhelming feeling to do that. Uh, but by the grace of God, unfortunately, the plane is already in the air, so it is no longer an option. Well, anyway, I end up landing. One of the first people I meet at the airport is a person that said they probably wouldn't be there. They're there. So I share them my relief and just kind of just share about how things are in general and the kind of anxiety and the pressure I feel. And he basically says to me this. He said, you know, he said, David, if nobody else comes, you and I are going to have a good time. Nobody else comes. We can ask the uh, guest speaker any question we want. He said, and as long as you and I here are here, he said, we are not going to be here to prove ourselves. We're going to be in here to improve ourselves. And we're going to improve ourselves by being in relationship with one another. And no matter else, what else happens, we're going to enjoy this time. Uh, and I remember the weight of that pyramid and those bricks beginning to dissipate. And I was reminded of what I know in my head is true, that I am not what I do. I am not what I produce. I'm not even what other people say that I am. I am a beloved child of God whose worth and value is grounded in the, just the fact that I've been created and I am here. That's who I am. I'm not a producer of bricks. I am more than that. I am a child. And my learning was, that's not just true for me. It's true for us all.